This is Bruce. This is John. This is Jay. This is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we explore the strange and unusual worlds of the TriTac Games, which is our fringeworthy FTL 2448 Incursion, Bureau 13, and the Stellar Game Systems, which also includes Expendables and the newest release TriTac Games, Hardwired Hinterland, and... Weird Zone. Weird Zone? Yes. Weird Zone. Yes, we released two games that year. Ooh, what's Weird Zone? Weird Zone is a game in which your house decides to go on an interdimensional jaunt. I I had to quit drinking when that happened to me. (laughs) Yes, you fly through a kind of a strange interdimensional space, along with other houses, by the way, and occasionally you can jump from one house to another. Yep. and get a new home base. But you, you travel and you land and you have a certain amount of time there and then the house takes off. But that's okay because when the house takes off, it just grabs you from wherever you are and yanks you back. I haven't really been able to jump from one house to another since I was 14. <laughs> but it sounds like an interesting role-playing act. Oh, yeah. yeah. You must have lived in that crowded neighborhood to do that. Yeah, well, yeah. I was doing the parkour fails before there was parkour or the Ow. fail blog. Right. But see, the one thing that I, I haven't checked into is how do you vote somebody out of your house? Because <laughs> if someone goes and stays in your house and comes with you, you're kind of stuck with them from that point on. Yeah. My name's Stan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> and I, I got to tell the podcasting audience here we're watching John on a video feed. Okay, he's miming all these characters. He's sitting there. He's mugging at us. He is totally making faces at us while we're trying to be serious doing this podcast. And it is just great. It is just a blast. He's really cheering yeah. the whole the whole place up. So you do realize, you do realize he starts doing the slog. We're gone. <laughs> Don't encourage the the Reiner. Bring the slog. Bring the slog. No, not right yet. No. No. Today's subject is... Before we do that, we have another question from Eric, Trav's co-host on the Travcast on Dementia Radio, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association. Yes. Do you, do you ever call him your codependent co-host, Eric the Enabler? No, he's the enabler because he likes to start trouble, like making me type out all these questions on the forums at TritechGamers.com. Yeah, evil Eric. And, did, did he point a gun at you, or did he just actually hand you the file? No, he wrote them all on a notebook and then said, here, type these out. And then my girlfriend says, well, why didn't you just type out a Word document? Oh, I wanted to see Robert suffer. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Anyways, the question, Bruce. The question. If you have a crystal key and you invoke the electrostatic dome option, is that able to stop fringe weather? Now, I gave him an answer uh, in the chat room of the Travcast, but in fact is I didn't quite understand what it was he was asking because I was thinking about the defense shield that's used to protect you against energy blasts and things like that. I wasn't thinking of the full-blown electrostatic barriers such as what's holding up the ice uh, away from Hatsumi Base. The life support dome. I I knew he meant that when he said that. Yeah, I didn't quite get that, so I'm going to have to change. Crystal Keys can do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's one of the higher powers is the life support dome. Yeah. Okay, so they can establish a life support dome, and then what? Does it, like, follow the key around? Yes. Or is it stuck there, or is the key stuck there? No, I think it's stuck. Focus on the keys. Wherever the key goes, it goes. So that means there's a key somewhere in Hatsumi Base that is keeping that barrier up. No, that's something else, I think. It, the magic item there has a different focus. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyways, Bruce, the answer. All right. Well, okay, so this thing, it doesn't say how big the electrostatic dome is, so it could be actually quite large. I wanted to pull up the actual description of this, so you guys can understand how potent 
this thing actually is. Creates an electrostatic dome that provides standard fringe space atmosphere, including percentages of gases, pressure, temperature, and gravity. This is much like the one that protects the portal at Hatsumi Base. It only prevents the intrusion of dangerous environmental effects, not hostile natives. This can be used to reactivate portals that have been merely submerged. It will not unearth buried ring stations. Those should have active displaced warps. This thing is actually a fairly large area, though it's really up to the GM to decide how much of an area it's going to take. I really think if you're go walking along a pathway, that it's not going to extend you know, out 400, you know, 200 feet in either direction I, off the pathway. I think it's going to be limited to whatever solid surface you have. That's understandable. I would say that it would probably be able to cover the, the, the nearby fringeworthy. And I like the idea of it being somewhat variable. I wish I had read that part Yeah. when I was making up my game. I imagined a kind of a dome near the gates, near the portals, on other worlds, like if there's a portal on Mars, uh -huh. it would have this kind of effect going on. But see, I reinvented things to do it in a different way, but you don't need that. All you can do is say, well, the portals can do that too. And a user could turn on the portal and say, create a safe space, and boom, there's the shield at Hatsumi Base. Okay. And there's an ability to use the things on like Mars or Venus or wherever you want to go. Well, Jay, one of the other powers is to create a staging area, which is exactly what you're talking about without actually cr uh, creating this uh, electrostatic dome that we're talking about. Okay. It's kind of an intermediate area where you go through the portal, you have a space. You can't interact with the world you're exploring. No, you can't interact with the world while you're in that, right? All right. So an electrostatic shield would allow you to go to Mars and get samples from Mars or go to Venus and get samples from Venus and otherwise interact with them without getting fried or, or exploded by vacuum or otherwise killed right, right. in a variety of unhappy ways. Right, but it could cause a real problem that you're not thinking of, and that is if you're on a world that's especially cold right. and you, go, you create an area that's going to automatically create temperature and pressure – that could cause a big reaction to your environment inside the electrostatic dome. The description said it blocked all environmental effects. So wouldn't the effect happen outside the dome? Well, it depends on what you're on. If you're on solid rock, okay, you're fine. Okay, But if you're like uh, on like snow, I'm not sure about that. Imagine we have a portal on Europa. Okay. And we tell the portal, put up an electrostatic shield, right? Right. So we step out. What I'm thinking is this shield would actually keep the effects inside the shield from bleeding outside the shield as well as the environment from outside bleeding in because it just makes more sense. It would be more useful that way. And we're talking a kind of technology that can warp the rules of space and time and pressure and temperature and things with no visible effect. I mean, this is really remarkable technology. Right. Well, if what you're saying is true, Jay, that means that it's not really creating a dome, it's creating a hemisphere. Yes, it's creating a some sort of environment, uh, no doubt programmed and by the user to fill whatever needs he wants, and I imagine it could be variable. I bet if the keys can do that, I wouldn't allow them to make do one as as big or as huge unless you imagine they have some power ability to use the fringe worthy's power supply. This is just wild stuff. Yeah. I mean, so are are the keys connected to the fringeworthy system such that they can draw power and draw effects from the fringeworthy system to suit the user's uh, requests? No, they do not. However, Jay, by traveling through a portal, you do recharge them. When they're in contact with the fringeworthy system, they do, can draw energy enough to recharge themselves. Right, by yeah. going through a portal interface, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that means that they have all the power they need on the fringe paths because unless you imagine that the fringe paths are a form of space in and of itself, separate from the gates, I was kind of thinking it was a created space, a virtual space held open by the system to allow you to move between portals. I would portals. also assume that. So could a crystal key run out of power on the fringe paths? I would think so. But I imagine that for a crystal key to run out of power on the fringe paths, you have to use it for a fairly long time. I imagine these things are fairly robust. Well, okay, let's take a look at the cutting torch aspect of it, okay? It says that it'll produce 66 fire damage per round for up to D4 plus one minutes. Yep. Okay. 
At which point that function of it is expended and you have to go through a portal before it will recharge. We're talking a pretty respectable cutting laser, but we're not talking like Unimus power there. I'm wondering if the dome that a, a crystal could create would be like something really small, like a lifeboat, enabling you to flee for safer climbs. I was thinking it wouldn't be smaller than the smallest portal, which is 25 foot, so it's probably 10 foot, 15 foot. Would it be necessarily a dome at all, or would it be a, a form fitting around the user of the key, trying to protect them from a hostile environment? No, let's say in the book, it forms a dome. It says also it can be used to reactivate portals, meaning that it creates enough of a space that a portal that might have been submerged will be considered to be clear and active. So it's more okay. than 25 feet, so 30 feet in size. Right. Like in the Bahamas or the North Sea on Earth Prime. Right. So it had to create at least a 25-foot high, 30-foot wide dome. And it did this where, Trav? On Earth Prime, there is the North Sea portal, and there is a portal in the Bahamas, which are both buried. Okay. Okay. Therefore, the electrostatic domes would come in real handy there. But the question that my co-host, Eric the Enabler, asked specifically, and Bruce said it, it also creates gravity. Therefore, the fringe weather that disrupts gravity... If you were to do the electrostatic barrier, it would restore gravity while that storm was... Yeah, I would think it would form an effective shield against fringe weather. I I would have to agree, too, because now I'm seeing it as being a much larger area. Before, I said it would keep out everything except for memory storms uh, and size storms, but I would say that unless you were right next to the wall of it, that you wouldn't have to worry about any of those things. Well, now, a, a memory storm or a psi storm is basically an area where memories and psionic effects are happening at random, right? Uh, now, I don't know if that would be an environmental thing or if that would be considered psionics for the purposes of what the electrostatic shield screened yeah, I, out. I, I would think that those two would be immune just be, because the memory and the psi, they're basically still both rampant psionic energy storms. That's not yeah. environmental factor like heat light, temperature. It's not a raindrop, it's a brain drop. There's also the fringe weather like the electrical storms and blue energy storms and... I don't think those would get through an electrostatic shield. Just because it's psionic energy, I don't think we should treat it somehow differently. It's still in a big cloud of stuff that's blowing along under its own power. That means if you go to the moon, you won't be in 1-6 gravity, you'll be in 1-G. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Walking around, kicking moon dust. Well, I don't think you actually would be kicking up moon dust, John. That's why I was raising the whole question about it causing an effect. Because if you go in, let's say, someplace like Neptune, where the ground is actually frozen methane, if that temperature, that normal temperature for us was being transmitted to the ground, then it would immediately vaporize. And we'd end up drilling a hole to the center of the planet. Lots of vaporized methane. I don't think that would happen. That would be horribly inconvenient, and it would kind of violate the whole point of creating a safe space so you can go and do something there. Dangerous environmental effects. So that falls underneath that. But if it's raining, the rain falls right through. I don't think so. I think it's not dangerous. That's weather, John. But it's not dangerous. It doesn't have to be dangerous. prevents the intrusion of dangerous environmental effects. Rain's so, not dangerous. And so the crystal key can determine in advance what's going to be dangerous to you and selectively screen out only the things likely to harm you. Yeah. I think it'd be like dangerous to the baseline human form or termellan form that the termellan yeah. found. So water rain? No, unless it's coming down in a torrential downpour, which usually would encompass winds with it. No. Yeah. Now, it's methane rain or acid rain, I would think the electrostatic barrier would go, okay, I think we can spare the people in the barrier this. Yeah. The fringe system is rather intelligent. It's not sentient, but it's intelligent. Therefore, it would say, okay, these life forms might not adjust well to this. We'll let this one go. I still I still don't entirely agree with that. Yeah. Those are such complex, situational, on-the-fly judgments. You got the shield up, you're walking through a forest, and, and it's been snowed on, and you're walking past trees. Does the snow just magically disappear from the branches, or does it stay there in place? 
It depends on what the snow is made of. If the okay. temperature is raised to a point where the snow would melt, yeah, then it would be melting off the trees. Okay. It would depend on the temperature differential between outside the barrier and what it is suddenly inside the barrier. If it's like yeah. a, oh God, let's say a 40 degree jump. It would start rapidly melting away and you could get the snow slapped on you if you pushed the branch aside and, you know, did one of those uh, three stooges thingies with it. If one of the branches melts just enough that it releases snow and you get that cascade effect. The branches goes up and causes the branch above to lose its snow ah. and so on. So. It comes down and stops when it hits the barrier and it slides off. Because the system operating the barrier thought, that's too much snow that could hurt you. Yeah. yeah. That's what keeps the ice out of Hatsumi Base, I mean, out of the dome area. That, that all the ice is moving. It's just not sitting there. It's moving. I've read it in previous editions. You hear the ice moving outside the barrier as it's shifting around. Yeah. yeah. You hear a cracking and shattering as it does. Yeah, exactly. Yes, thank you. I agree with you, Jay, that I think that this is a, a case where, first of all, the GM's got to decide. Yeah. And secondly, is that I would try to be as conservative as possible to the omniscience that is being applied here for a crystal producing an electrostatic dome. Yeah, especially given that the crystals don't seem to carry a huge amount of energy around with them. They carry a really kind of conservative small amount of energy. Yeah. So it, it may be that the Termelern, when they were making them, said, you know, we need not to derange things so hard. We need to walk with a light touch. Yeah. In Jay's version of this, the key would keep you safe on Europa for a few minutes while you ran back for the portal not carrying enough energy to really alter that kind of cold and that kind of pressure and that kind of all those different things going on. But the gate could set up its own electrostatic shield and stay there ha happily for as oh, long yeah. as they last, which who knows? I would say if you're such where you can be within a certain distance of the gate, you can start uh -huh. tapping the gate at that point and you can get a bigger shield. Well, I just asked Bruce that question, and Bruce said going through recharges them, they cannot tap the power available to well, the rest of the system. A little thought experiment here. You have an underwater gate. That water pressure right. is enormous. That's just as bad as being on Europa. So you're down in a deep ocean trench next to a portal. Yeah. The portal has its own electrostatic dome, which is keeping the horrifying pressure off your yep. skull. What's the next step of your thought experiment there? There's no dome over it. You're down there either in a submarine or whatever, and now you, you need to, to activate the dome fit feature to surround the gate. But okay. as you said, there's not enough power to do that. So the only way you can do that is if you can somehow tap the power off the gate. No, I never said that, John. I remember you said, no, it cannot tap the power on the fridge path. Oh, no, I agree that. I'm just saying is that not every function of the crystal is going to use the same amount of power. Yeah, okay. I think that the amount of power required to create an electrostatic dome under the various conditions that a dome would be used is immensely more than what would be necessary to create a cutting laser. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that in the case of reactivating a portal, basically the key is saying, hey, portal, somebody's here and wants to use you, and it's the portal doing the hard work. The key is communicating. That could be. If there's nothing in the text that says that, but there's nothing wrong with you making that decision as a GM. Yeah. Okay. Keep in mind one more thing, and that is, is that it says use of these functions more than once every 15 minutes causes a constitution drain. So it's clear to me that these functions are supposed to deactivate at, at no more than 15 minutes. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you're not creating an ongoing, here, let me create this dome, and, and now I can sleep underneath the Neptunian sky. Mm. Yeah. You're, you're creating a very temporary usage where you can do something in an environment where you need your hands free or you need to activate a portal under the water, and then you go through and then it's no longer needed. And you understand this from a metagaming point of view. It's designed to make the keys not Swiss army knives. Yeah. You don't run after every problem with a crystal key and make the crystal key solve it. You have to solve it yourself, and you have to bring mundane equipment and tools with you. And there's another reason to consider this, and that is, is that the lowest form of crystal that has this function is level four. That's a very low-level crystal. That's limited maintenance. To think that you've got some kind of a crystal that's an anti-nuke defense shield, I think is a little bit much. It makes sense that, you know, a low-level flunky key 
would contain mechanisms to allow a flunky to flee for his life under bad circumstances, a short-term defense to allow him to escape and seek help. Or like the energy shield. It could be that they would turn it on just when they were working on bits of the rings of the, of the portal system that, well, radiate. So you turn it on, you, you do your thing, you turn and you leave and turn it off. You know, it's just a little, you know, it's their version of a, ha- uh, not a hazmat ship, but ver- their version of welding goggles. Or, or a lockout tagout. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I see it as a temporary aid, not as something for establishing any kind of a permanent environment. Okay. So you would so, not be able to do the, oh, we want to make a, a station here for under the Bahamas portal. No, you're there to explore, see what's on the bottom of the ocean floor and get back onto the fringe paths. Yeah, I think actually creating a dome for the Bahamas would be a, a gate function. It would be much higher access than a general maintenance key. Yeah. You'd have to be a really important termellant to be yeah. able to ask the key to do things like that for you, It, it yeah. in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It allows you to go and build some kind of a dome, a metal, let's say a metal dome or a lucite dome or something that actually could take the pressure of those depths wearing, you know, deep sea suits or underwater uh, automated vehicles and putting that all around the portal, getting it set up and then going down, going out there in some kind of a hard suit, activating the crystal, clearing the envi- the water from it, sealing it up within that 15 minutes and now you have an active portal that operates underneath the water. Yeah. In my game, uh, I had a an active ring at the Yonagumi underwater monument. I just assumed that they went through the ring, they went into the water. I was assuming that the ring was actually not creating a warp like it should have, but that it was leading yeah. right to the underwater environment. And I had the uh, Chinese and the Japanese working in partnership start to build a coffer dam around the area so they could get the water out of there and try to bring the gate into a condition where they could use it themselves. Okay. The only way I can see that actually working, Jay, would be if you went and built some kind of environment around the gate you were leaving, and so you could pump up the pressure to the point where, as you went through, when you hit that water, you know, if it was like three or four atmospheres, then you wouldn't get crushed. I looked at the depth of the Yanagumi Monument, and it was really actually kind of shallow. I think it's like 30 feet. Okay, that's still one atmosphere. It's a doable engineering project to sink walls and get them tight and then pump the water out of it. Basically, dig a hole in the ocean so you can get Yeah, to you're the not having to suffer through the bends or anything, you know. No, but still, that's a big yeah. change in pressure. That's, that, that's two atmospheres at 30 feet versus one atmosphere at sea level. Yep. Ah. You've doubled your atmospheric pressure. I was kind of hand-waving it. This was this was cinematic uh, Sequest underwater technology, not uh, oh, not yeah. the realistic stuff where you look at it really hard and get the bands to die in agony. Yeah, I mean, this is why we decided that the, the warp would go to the nearest piece of dry land. So when the uh, portal's turned on for the for near Japan that's in Challenger Deep, you don't step out to, yeah, squishy bug time. But it's just said it goes to the nearest piece of dry land uh, in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bahamas, it goes to the nearest shore at that point in time. Right. And so in order to use that, under those conditions, people would just have to uh, build infrastructure for using the warp near the beach. Oh, that sounds yeah. so horrible. Those poor people. And build it up, too, because it, because if, 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 if it does it at low tide, that warp will <laughs> now move up the shore and move back <laughs> down again. <laughs> 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 yeah, at least at least it doesn't try to reposition itself. Otherwise, you'd be chasing that warp up and down the beach every day. Yeah. Not, oh my goodness! Wow, that's just a wonderful mental image. Right, but in answer to your uh, to Eric's original question, which was you know like the rains of frogs and other things like that, you know, yes, that would be keep that would protect you from that kind of stuff. So you wouldn't have to worry about you know getting the waking up and finding that a fringe weather had deposited a foot of uh, scorpions on top of you or something. Oof. Okay. Which which I have done to people, by the way. It was good eating. Oh, right. I hate, yeah, I told him about your fuel air bomb thing, and he's just like, I'm noticing a motif with him. I said, oh, yeah, he, he seems to love the fuel air bombs, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, just to let people understand about the usage of this, 
Uh, this is a DC 35 power, which even though that's very high, that's really only high in the sense that it would probably be a while before someone taught you about it. But if you're in the middle campaign, there's a really good chance that people would know this and know how to use it. And if you are using the D20 Modern system and you have what's called a dedicated character, you would only have to be level four to be able to do this. Oh, yeah. If, if, have a you, chance. Uh, if you specialized in, yeah. in the skills and things necessary to do it, yeah. If you had a, an 18 Wisdom, if you, you maxed out all your points as you're allowed to as you go up levels, and if you took a skill emphasis uh, on crystal use. That's going to be a really, really specialized crystal user. Not really. We lie. She's a specialized crystal user. Okay. If for no other reason than the fact is that they want her, they're the, the earliest crystal users, and they wanted them to get really good at using them so they could find more fringeworthy. Well, that also gains them the ability to do other things. I say you can do a take 10, take 20 on crystal use. If you have all the time in the world and can retry as many times as you need to to get a success, yeah, then oh, yeah. you're going to be able to do that. So she's really good at finding Fringeworthy. So if you want to write in your little backstory, your character probably was found by Weelai during the off months where they're looking for more Fringeworthy. Right. If you're playing in the middle campaign where there's going to be more of these crystals available, and especially if you're playing in the late campaign where really crystals will be very abundant, having this kind of power, as you said, Swiss Army knife aspect, yeah. The crystal would be very useful, very good reason for someone to put a lot of points in the crystal use. In the later campaign, we're talking Fringeborn as well, you know, yeah. which means I, you've gone to school. You, you start with a, you know, a higher level, probably. No, I, I was assuming, by the way, that fourth level was if you were somebody who used that as one of your, start, your, your starting uh, occupation bonuses. Gotcha. The one where you get a plus one if you already have points in it. Mm-hmm. Bonus, yes. So I'm just saying is that was just another plus one. Otherwise, it would have been five. But still, you know, those are low-level characters that are able to throw up this electrostatic dome. So and a lot of other powers too. So that's that's a lot of flexibility. Crystal keys, fringe paths, fringe weather. The crystal key can establish its electrostatic shield and protect you from fringe weather. But it's a weather-based effect. So something else that the GM delights in tormenting you with is going to get through the shield. Right. For example, is that if you get that rain of, uh, of scorpions, okay, they may come down around you, but that doesn't mean they can't come crawling in after that. Yes. It doesn't keep any kind of hostile animal or person from moving inside the dome. In the near future, mankind will discover something that will change him forever. An ancient portal system to millions of worlds. Built by a civilization of advanced alien beings, now lost to the ravages of an interdimensional war, you will venture forth into the fringes of space and time to find alternate Earths and alien worlds, where he will find a wondrous bounty of knowledge as to who he was and what he might become. He will also find danger at every turn as he encounters hostile societies, alien beings, and the insidious Miller. Fringeworthy. Tabletop game of interdimensional adventure is now available for a D20 system and coming soon to Savage Worlds. Action and adventure await you as you explore through the interdimensional fringes of space to an infinite number of new worlds. Your characters will face danger and excitement around every corner. Sail with Blackbeard on the Seven Seas. Journey to a steampunk Victorian age. Fight the Soviets in an 80s America that lost the Cold War. Travel to an alternate future and witness a supernova from the bridge of a starship, and then battle it out with blasters and plasma swords. Use any D20 setting you already own, or invent your own. Check out the French Woody Podcast at tritaxsystems.podbean.com to find out more. Whether you've never heard of Fringeworthy or have been playing it for the past 25 years, the Fringeworthy Podcast will entertain and inform you of all the cool stuff you can do with the most all-encompassing setting ever written. Every week, we'll take you on a tour of the fringes of space and give you tips on how to game in this fantastic multiverse. We discuss adventure ideas for the game masters and how to keep your team of characters alive for the players. Go to tritacsystems.podbean.com and take a listen. You can also find us on iTunes under keyword Fringeworthy. A million million worlds await you. Music by Ernest available on iTunes.
On our Fringeworthy segment, we're going to be talking about the Demixi. The Demixi are a strange alien race that is very much descended from spiders that Earth runs into. They're not that far away. They're only out four nodes to the right as you come out of the Fringe Pass on Earth Prime. They turn out to be very, very much like us uh, as in humanity, which is a good or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already discussed that the Mixi have a big problem in that they're big, giant spiders. We discussed in our Alien Core episode that they would probably be a real impediment to first contact. Well, yeah, you got a giant spider walking up going, Hey, can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> they're between 4 foot 7 inches to 5 foot long, which means also mostly tall, because they can sit up very well. So that's a pretty darn big spider. I think they operate in, in centaur form all the time. So they are four and a half feet long, and then they got another torso on top of that. So they're probably standing about six, seven foot tall. In D20 parlance, it'd still be medium-sized creatures. Right. That's true, yeah. Looking here at the, the entry on uh, the Demixi, they said that they had the same social, political, and family structures as humans, and they mirror mankind's progress and development. Wow. That sounds okay. I mean, it kind of sounds like they're really kind of just like us. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, wait a second, that's not necessarily a good thing. No. No, if they're the same type of human psychology... You could really have a nasty Demixi villain. And the fact that it's a spider form, that would just add to the creep factor. I mean, humans who are really xenophobic, that would really just be like, okay, an evil spider being, this is just about as bad as it can get. I'm not evil. I'm just misunderstood. Going, no, no, you're quite evil. (laughs) But look at the personality and views section. Wealth. To be attained, justice for the deviant, honor, unknown, politics, part of life, red tape, part of politics. I mean, they don't have a sense of honor the way we think of it. They're not chivalrous. They don't believe in justice. They're really, really competitive. Republicans. (laughs) Oh, dude. Just take it apart one by one. So they have no sense of justice. What does that mean? They don't think that life is fair. Okay. They don't think that wrongs need to be redressed. Or they don't think it's possible to ever truly redress a wrong. So is there such a thing as crime in their world then? I imagine there would be. You know, you're still not going to want to let someone take your stuff. That's true. They may have a different sense of community and property than we do. Well, no, well to be attained, that means they can be greedy. Right. And justice for the deviant. And if wealth is to be attained, that also means you have to be able to hold on to it. Therefore, there has to be a sense, you know, ownership exists. Yeah. They do follow our society. But I have a feeling that they are a lot more, let us say, the Wild West type, maybe a lot more gangsterish than our world is? Well, it says your work builds prosperity. Therefore, they have a work ethic. That work ethic may be different than what we consider a work ethic. They may have very underhanded business ethics, stuff that we just see them do business, and we're like, damn, that's cold. If I can get over on you, that's okay. Bribery, there's lots of places in our world where bribery is considered part of the process. Yeah, there's um, a term in the campaign for my Saturday Night D&D game, super omnivoric competition. That would be the Demixie to a T, then, if that were the case, by what I read here. They will do anything and everything to try to outdo each other in business, whatever, just to try to get better than everyone else. Well, I'm looking at this because, okay, so we have work is build prosperity, marry that with wealth is to be attained, Politics, a part of life. I don't see these people as being capitalists. I see them actually maybe more socialists. Oh, I don't see that at all. I see them as totally capitalist. 
Oh, no, I see them, if anything, as inc incredibly Machiavellian. I don't know we want to go that far because they're also very likable, which means they have a very strong social ability. In the D20 parlance, they would probably have the trustworthy feet. <laughs> Look down in the uh, bad traits. We have overly curious and poke into things. So they're very inquisitive. They don't respect boundaries. They'll get into your stuff if you don't stop them. Well, their yeah. idea of personal space might be different, too. I do think that they respect things like ownership, but I think you got to show that you care about it. If you don't act like you care about it, it's mine. In other words, you got to show that you have a very strong possessive streak on the stuff that you hold. Right. In other words, let's say you drive your Humvee in onto their world and you just leave it parked. You don't sit there and do stuff to make sure no one's going to get into it. You're going to find a couple of Demixie up and carrying your Humvee away and you're going to be like, wait a minute, hold it, that's, that's ours. A couple, it'll be like a swarm. It'll be like in Coming to America where they pulled up in the cab with all the luggage sitting on top of the cab and on the counter and they went inside to get themselves a, an apartment and they came back out and not only was all their stuff gone, half the people in the neighborhood were now openly wearing their stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody's watching it, so obviously they don't care about it, right? If you know in the Demixie world, leave someone behind with the car. Keep your children close. <laughs> Yeah, I look at that and I say there's a problem with that point of view. You can't leave anything behind because you're afraid to take it. They can't leave anything behind because they're afraid someone will take it. So everyone's overly paranoid. They're not coming off as paranoid. No, no, I'm not saying paranoid, okay, because that's, you know, it's a matter of expectation, okay? Here's a culture, okay, which has 50% survival rate of its young. They have a gestation period of 86 days, and they have births of two to six. I think there's lots of these guys around. I think there's competition for everything. That, yeah. They probably have a whole bunch of younglings that they can say, okay, you guys watch that stuff. That's your job. You watch that. You take care of that. You take care of that. They're looking for material things, material wealth. They're working to make their lives better and get more stuff. I think the term super omnivore competition is right because mm -hmm. the kids all have to compete in order to try to, you know, be the best in the family. And they may have extended families, you know, three, four generations maybe living together. What's missing from the right up here? Do they form lasting bonds? Or is it basically, hi, baby, clink, 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 hey, and he's off he goes. Well, now we know that family is very important, so they do form long-lasting bonds. And politics are part of life, and politics is all about forming re long-term relationships. But lots of relationships. Yeah. Maybe it's not polygamous. Well, maybe it is a polygamous situation where there's several males and several females. You would need to go to a gene lab to figure out who's who's the parent of who or which kid is. I'm sure they have a whole web of relationships, John. But don't cheat. <laughs> Theirs is a dying world. Yeah. Why is their world dying? Because they used it up. <laughs> I think so. I really do. Imagine our world where, like, back in the 60s when industrialization was getting really big into high gear and there hadn't been an ecological movement, there hadn't been any passing any laws to control the uh, transport or control of toxic waste and preserving nature. They're like, well, we don't care if the snail darter dies. There's lots more snails out there, you know. Who cares if the frogs die? Who cares if a couple people get emphysema? What's important is that people have jobs and they got food on their table. Yeah, and the first thing French really said when they visited the world is... <coughs> yeah, and also, why is your sky brown? Yeah. <laughs> Rich, did you, did you want to add something? Well, I don't know about skies being brown. Have you ever been to L.A.? Yeah. Yeah, but we're talking you're out in the countryside and the sky's still brown. <laughs> but it, it says here, um, having a lower, even lower incidence of fringeworthy in their population than humans, Earth's spider-like ally was eager for peaceful contact and sharing of any technology to supplement their dying world. So most likely, yeah, due to their technology and their culture, they probably just were abusive to their environment. And it sounds like more so than what Earth Prime seems to be. Yeah, they've probably poisoned their oceans. Yeah, like, and they probably do have brown skies. It also said here their construction techniques may revolutionaries high-rise construction, which means they probably built up and up and up, and the lower you go, because of the super omnivore competition, 
the lower levels of of Demixie, what is it, uh, Matt Demka Prime, may be where the nasty stuff is. And the higher you build up, the higher you are, the better. Like it's a social strata, sort of like Blade Runner. The lower you go, you run into the mobs. You know, yeah. we can brought down here. <laughs> I see here that if they build high rise construction, that's probably how it is. Is the higher you up you are, the more status you have. Because also up higher, the air is going to be cleaner. Yep. Up below, it's going to be dirty and polluted, and you're near the ground where all the pollution is, and near the water. Right. And just Think Metropolis. Think Metropolis, the movie. Russ Manning's Magnus Robot Fighter with the mile high spires. Oh and yeah, that's everybody who lived at the top. At the bottom were the the gope, the people who didn't fit in. The, the ground level was a mess. Pretty much what I was saying. I was not aware of the movie. Thank you, Rich. Comic books. Oh, okay. Comic All right. Well, they do have environmental awareness now. The penny has dropped. Basically, <laughs> they're learning environmental awareness almost too little, too late. Right. They're scurrying around trying to save their planet. And here comes Idet through these warps and portals, and they're like, hey, these guys might be able to help us if they have these weapons and these vehicles. More importantly, the technology that is implied by the fact that the fringe pass exists. Even though they have a lower chance of being fringe-worthy, I think due to population pressures, they probably got just as many fringe-worthy as we do on Earth Prime. Ultimately, it really wouldn't make any difference. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't matter what the instance of fringeworthy are in your campaign. Everybody that you want to be fringeworthy is fringeworthy. As you're describing the, the world, which is an interesting thought, I, I hadn't explored that much of it. If you think carefully about what's going on with Russia, some of the cities we have never seen and now we're seeing incredible filth pits, uh, toxic yeah. waste, uh, but the cities are still active and people are still working. Some of the places over in India also that are like that. Richard, you can answer one thing that is not actually in any of the write-ups. Do Demixie lay eggs, or do they give live birth? Roll a die 10. <laughs> That's a classic to Hulk answer. GM fiat, baby. GM fiat. No, actually, it's important, because we have said that if you get a pregnant monkey and take her through the portal, her little ape child's going to be fringe-worthy. Is the little arachnid child going to be fringe-worthy? If they're in eggs, then they're not going to come through. The eggs fall down, and bang, that's it. I would probably say that they lay eggs. Yeah. So that means they can't use the birth method that's of those. That's probably why there's such a low incidence of fringeworthy then, too. Right. I thought that, too. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons that you can imagine these guys as being so industrious is if you look at their sleep cycle, they're awake 30 hours, and they're asleep four. So they got plenty of time to do stuff. Their work ethic, it, because they can work all that time, I can see why they say work builds prosperity, wealth to be attained. They're going to come to Earth Prime, and let's say in the later campaign you get Demixie there on Earth and they're building, helping build high-rises. That's going to really jack with like union rules because you're going to be having these Demixie workers cranking out literally 24 hours straight of work, and humans are going to be like, we can't keep up, man. What is this? <laughs> The original story about the spiders, it was called Joe and the Spiders. It was done about the same time the original Fringeworthy couple of pages were done. The very, very short piece of story that the game was based on. And it was about a union worker having trouble dealing with spiders. One of the spiders saved him from falling off of a building. And then he began to explore a little more of their culture and decided the spiders were just people. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. About three years before the main book came out. If you look at their lifespan, though, the lifespan's only 38 years. Right. Even with the fringe extension, the, the fringery will last probably 80 years. Oh, well, it depends on how much time they spend on the pathways. They could last for 380 or more. Yeah. 38 years, they are always busy doing something. Their life because is full. Because they, yeah. they, they have such a short lifespan and apparently a 34-hour day on their Earth Prime, yeah, they're going to try to pack as much as they can, and because of that rush, rush, rush mentality, that's probably a reason why their world is environmental danger. Right. Because of the fact that they just had this mentality, we got to get this done, got to get this done. 
Anybody who says something like, well, no, we got to stop and we got to wait. We got to ex- examine and test and stuff like that. They're going to be like, are you nuts? I got deadlines. I got things to do. I got to beat my grandfather's quota. We got to build this bridge across this river by next week. Never going to do this if we wait for an OSHA study. OSHA. I don't think OSHA exists on this world. Well, if their environment's <laughs> that bad, yeah, OSHA would be the last of their concerns. I'm just thinking about some of their life cycle, because that actually should play into it. With only 38 years, they're probably maturing at around 10 or 12. I was thinking that also. If they mature into adults within 10 years, then that's effectively another 10 years of life. Also, the chance they have more kids. (laughs) So they might actually have effectively as much time as we do from the standpoint of you take the, the number of active years and multiply it times the number of waking hours where they actually can do stuff, you might find that they spend more time in industry than, than a human being would. But they have discovered useful technology, like they know how to make beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I saw that. And since the usual <laughs> quote is, boy, I could use a beer with dinner, we know these guys drink a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, with that kind of metabolism and that kind of speed, you're going to be eating four or five times during a day. Well, maybe so. Well, yeah, and also with how big they are, it's going to take a lot of beer to get them messed up. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to be sucking down beer, and humans are going to be looking going, are you serious? Well, they're spiders. Spiders eat food in a certain way. Yeah. They inject digestive juices inside their prey and then suck them dry. Dude, they're going to do the same thing to a keg that they would do to their prey then. Sink their muscles into it and suck the keg dry. They're going to shotgun it. (laughs) And something thick and meaty, not meaty, but mead-y, like beer, could be a primary way of getting their nutrients. They probably do stouts and and, uh, brandy and barley wines. Stuff that has body to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're used to that nice, thick, ropey stuff. You know, you show up for the mixing party... And everyone has a keg. And you're going, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And you're like saying, let me show you how to make Applejack. And they're like, oh, please. <laughs> Dude. Cole's the Newcastle here. <laughs> yeah, I know. And of course, we say, well, we used to do a trash can when we were in college. And they would go, oh, we don't do trash cans. We do uh, dumpsters. You know. <laughs> they got like a kiddie pool full, you know, like one of those. Those four-foot-high edge above-ground pools, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of those poi ponds, right? <laughs> they go and line a dumpster with pla- with vinyl plastic, and then they fill it full. <laughs> it's, it sounds like the kind of project they could really get into. About their social s- structure, it says they come in two racial types and a variety of ethnic colors. Mm-hmm. Now, the two special types, you have the hunters and the spinners. Yeah. The hunters become the economic specialists and authority figures, and the spinners become the thinkers and the technicians. They might have the same coloration between hunters and spinners, or the hunters might have all their ethnic colors, and the spinners might have all their ethnic colors. Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell because in the picture, you know, one of them is red and one of them is yellow. So, <laughs> yeah. But actually, I would imagine that uh, they actually would, if you look at a lot of uh, uh, hunting spiders, I imagine the hunters would probably tend toward more to the earth tones and colors like that, while the spinners may actually be more brightly colored. So yeah. we may be looking at two spinners there, and the hunter would, would scare the crap off of you, because you he, he walk by a bush, it stands up and says, hi. Well, we know that there are four different languages, which really means one's technical. So we're looking at three different languages. So we have at least three different nations represented by the language. And then we have two different groups, the hunters and the uh, spinners. So that's a possible six political groups that could be uh, interacting with each other. And these are majority languages, so there's probably a bunch of dialects and smaller languages that may get spoken as well, but these are the majority languages. That would be why you'd have a lot of politics, is because you do have all these different languages, meaning that you don't have a monoculture here. Much like India. India uses English for politics and for its governmental language. Not Hindi, or not any of the dialects a language for each of the types of spiders, and possibly a secondary language between the two of them. Like a pigeon language, almost. Your average mix is going to speak Bargeel, Stigeel, and Akil, and maybe some technical Stigeel. 
But other than that, you know, it'd be a very odd one who doesn't speak any of those three languages. Because they're like 95, 95, and 95 for the three major languages and only 45 for the technical. Taking less than 1% chance of not speaking one of those languages. When we look on the available skills, one of the skills is environmental awareness. If their world is as bad off as we think they are, then that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. But they also do economics and engineering as equally as well. Well, all that would be important for moving the food and the resources around to keep everybody alive. Engineering and economics. We don't see science. So these guys, they may actually do have scientists, but they're not as important as the engineers. And their technology may not be as it was. It was a technology equivalent, 1990, 10, 20 years behind Earth Prime in that aspect. But the text says that they mirror mankind's progress and development. So we have to assume yeah. that they do have chemistry and physics and all those things as well. And the range as well, because remember, we have people with, like us, talking on computers to people who talk singing around a fire to each other. Probably, you know, still demixity on their world who basically don't have the luxury of technology at all. So the real question here is whether or not uh, what their arts are like. Mm, A lot of tapestries. I don't mean the construction. Is fine art honored in this society? If everybody can spin a web, does that make tapestry just kind of commonplace? Well, I'm sure that they probably have various sculpture and dance and music. And if they mirror humanity as it says it does, they're going to have all that stuff. It's just it's going to be very different than what we see. Don't forget, they have multiple eyes. So their version of what we consider 3D would be worthless to us because we're saying, I'm getting a headache watching your 3D movie. You're lacking enough eyes to see it properly. We were discussing before we did this show whether or not they talk through their mouth or they breathe through what's called spiracles, these little holes in the sides of their abdomen. And I'm going at their arachnids, how they breathe when they're in the primitive forms. I don't see them developing a throat and a set of lungs to talk through. They're probably still breathing through their sides. So if they're going to be using like wind instruments, they'll be putting onto their sides and blowing rather than putting into their mouth. Now, I'm not a very good person to talk about music with as far as playing instruments, but yeah. if you have an instrument that's going to be strapped along the body where the, the spiracles are, demixing music is going to be very multitonal because of the fact that you're going to have all of this type of air, and there's going to be no way that a human's going to be able to play this without a vast apparatus, almost like a bellows-type thing, to supply all the air to go through this. Their bagpipes are going to be just ridiculous looking. Well, it may be that they may have independent control over their uh, the, their their breathing holes, and they might be able to whistle and make all kinds of notes out of it. So it may be that they could actually produce chords and multiple voices, so to speak, out of their own bodies. No one human could actually do it, but you know, it takes like three or four people to do it, probably. Someone saying he talks out of both sides of his thorax could actually be a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a really good speaker. Yeah, we couldn't even, yeah, we could spend a whole other hour on Demixie idioms alone just based on their culture. But um, their choir, their vocal music would mm-hmm. be just incredible. You would hear it and it would sound, well, a wheezing bass, I don't know. I mean, it might, and, and John, don't even go there with trying to sing in that voice. Just don't. <laughs> If you think I'm sexy, come on, baby. (laughs) A wheezing buzz is their voice. If my voice was a wheezing buzz and I could sing and it sounded really good, I'd rather just sing everything that I said versus having something that sounded like that. They might have musical tone to their speech then. And it may also be that what we hear as a wheezing buzz might have all kinds of bass overtones that are really very attractive to them. Oh, so are you saying that their voice, some of their voice might even be above and beyond normal human speaking range? Above or below, yeah. Mm-hmm. That like ultrasonic and subsonic type buzzing and whatnot that the well, human... Well, besides their abdomen, I would say subsonic. They probably have basses that would make, or, you know, James Old Jones look like a tenor. <laughs> if they say they have a plus one with hearing as far as, well, obviously they have a plus two with vision because of the multiple eyes. But if they have a plus one with hearing, it's because they, they have to be able to hear those bass tones. And I'm sure that the Bargeal, Stelgeal, and Achille, humanity may not, I mean, a human may try to speak it, 
and he'll only get part tones, they'll probably hear a human trying to speak that, and they'll sound like they have an incredible speech impediment because the human vocal apparatus and the breathing apparatus would not be able to even get near Howard Demixie, so they're not going to be able to get the full nuances of the speaking the Demixie tongues. They won't be able to reproduce the sounds. Right. Unless, gonna, it's, unless, it's, unless you are James Earl Jones. Somebody with a really deep bass voice, even then the Demixie might go, oh, that's cute, you're trying to sound like us. But, yeah, <laughs> I see an incredible depth of variance in tones that mm-hmm. many other races, if they try to speak the Demixie tongues, just won't be able to mimic. And at the most it's going to come across as a very stilted language and the demix you're probably going to end up having to learn English just to interact with humanity. Or you sound like a kid, like a right, two-year-old. Exactly. Just somebody who does not have a good grasp of the language. No, no you, you, even the gifted language, you'll still sound like a kid. Kids have small thoraxes, small abdomens. They basically will come off sounding, sounding like this. Yeah, you'll exactly. You'll be high-pitched. Yeah, high to them. Maybe. They should have a normal range. So, yeah, we're not going to have a situation where they can't hear people who talk in high voices because there's probably lots of dangerous things that make high-pitched sounds they can hear. So, yeah, so you you have to think it through sometimes. Oh, yeah, various predators that they've had to deal with on their world, yeah. And considering that they are arachnids, there are probably no mammals, no lizards, just basically of the the insect and and, uh, arachnid families, you know, the things that ever evolved in that world. Cuisine's going to be wonderful then. A human's going to be invited to a Demixie feast, and all they're going to be seeing is bugs. Yeah. And then he watched their host go, jab, spit, spit, spit. <laughs> Have some, it's good. You're like, aha. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, just like we prepare our food, yeah. I'm sure that they prepare their food, so there would be probably lots of soups and purees and other things yeah. like that. You yeah, know. but they don't waste anything. Oh, I don't know. If, if the world is as bad off as we think they are, then not, probably not. We were talking about being musical in language. I was looking at their names. Takaka Milde, Skohi Miltaka. Those are, if you're doing them proper tones, those would probably would be somewhat musical in sounding. So maybe you're right. Maybe you do talk with a tonal language. To our listeners, you can see that there's probably a lot of variance away from humanity, more than it apparently originally appeared. They're very get along very well with humans, though. Uh, they seem to be very outgoing and very sociable, but at the same time, they're definitely an alien species. So we hope that you've gotten some good ideas about how to play a Demixie, and hopefully you'll add them in to your campaigns. But remember, they do have a uh, plus three level adjustment due to all their bonuses to stats and the fact that they can spin webs. So they would probably be added more toward the middle campaign uh, as part of an actual fringeworthy team. But we make such wonderful people to come visit. I have one thing to add. (laughs) Yes, sir. Originally, the art was done by Tom Dow, the 95 edition, and it took us almost a year to realize what the Demixie was pulling out of his backpack. It's a bra. Exactly. Yes. That's what I thought, too. I still haven't quite thinking about why, and uh, now that Tom Dow was back in the United States, I'm going to get a chance to ask him. I didn't think he was pulling it out of the backpack. I think he was about to put it on his head. Yeah, the backpack's open, but the way the guy has holding his hands up around his head, I figured he was going to put it on like some kind of a cap or something. Yeah, but the, you can look at the other guy. He's just he's cringing, going, oh, you, you, could, you didn't find that, did you? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Oh, you, you didn't find that. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. Oh, geez. Don't, don't. Okay. Don't tell anybody. We, it didn't happen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go and stop this recording. Okay. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Podcast. 
is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.